what is meant when historians talk about pre-70 Judaism and post-70 CE Judaism? And what opinion do the scrolls reveal about that? One of the things that's very clear is that the destruction of the temple had an effect on the nature of Judaism, because in pre-70 Judaism, the main thing that one did was to participate in the temple ritual. And there was a centralization, which leads also, on some level, to what people always talk about as a vicarious religious experience, because even if I'm not there, I'm being represented. So in that type of situation, we have tremendous emphasis on sacrifice, and we have only the beginnings of the synagogue as we know it in the pre-Christian, in the, pre, in the pre-destruction era, which is, of course, the pre-Christian era, as I said, it's essentially the same era. We have the beginnings of the, uh, of the synagogue. Now, when the destruction of the temple happens, two major things happen. One, the significance of the synagogue and prayer. Not that prayer didn't exist before. In Qumran, we have daily prayers. But what happened is that the significance of the synagogue tremendously expands, and it spreads all over the place geographically and as an archaeological site, because we have them all over the place. And then you get also tremendous emphasis being placed on Torah study, as if I can borrow the word from the Christians, a sacrament meaning that one of the ways in which I worship God is by studying his Torah. So there's no question that this emphasis changed. Now, having said that, we have to be very careful of not overdoing this. There uh, is a basic concept in old Protestant scholarship, which was anti-Semitic, which said that when the Jews rejected Jesus, Judaism changed completely from the prophetic religion into such things as rabbinism, legalism. These are all like dirty words for what happened when Judaism developed after rejecting Jesus. Now, that point of view has largely been pushed away, even in scholarship done by Christians today, as being anti-Semitic as it was. But we have to be very careful that when we overemphasize those changes that took place within the structure of the temple, in a certain sense, we are in an imitating, let's just say, that same anti-Semitic idea, just that we pushed it ahead a few years. Jesus was crucified in 30, the temple was destroyed in 70. So we want to avoid overemphasizing discontinuity, and we won't want to overdo it. But yet there's no question that there are serious changes. Certainly in how we would appreciate, if you were a Jew living at that time, observing Judaism, Forget the people who experienced the Korban. So let's say a person 100 BC and a person 100 CE. Their experience of Judaism would be quite different. Why do you contend, if I understand your position correctly, that the scrolls teach us more about Judaism than about early Christianity? Well, I think what has to be emphasized here is to start with what are we studying when we study the Dead Sea Scrolls? Now, one thing we could do is we could say we really want to know about some strange people who couldn't take the environment in Jerusalem from a religious point of view and went to the desert and set up their own set. The alternative is I want to study the scrolls to see what the scrolls tell me about Judaism at the time. 
So I'm going to look at the biblical scrolls. What do they tell me about the state of Tanakh? I'm going to look at the works of non-sectarians, as we call them, that came into the possession of the group. And I'm going to look at the group's own works. Now, the difference between these two activities is that in one case, I'm studying a corpus of Jewish texts that come from Second Temple times, and I'm studying about Second Temple Judaism. The other way, I'm, I'm studying some strange people. Now, what happened in the field historically is that the study of the strange people was what really was the mainstream. And then those strange people were understood to have some connection to early Christianity based on a theory that went back hundreds of years that the Essenes might be proto-Christians. And then the whole thing was being studied as if what you have here is a corpus of pre-Christian documentation of the beginnings of Christianity. Now, this, in my view, is erroneous, because if you read the entire corpus as we have it, you have an enormous amount of information, not simply about the sectarians themselves, but about Judaism as a whole, as found in many of the other books, and also in the sectarian arguments with Judaism as a whole, you learn about the people they're arguing with. So from my point of view, the basic data that I'm reading, that I'm looking at, is data about Judaism in the Second Temple period as a large-scale enterprise. Now, that is the generality of the answer to your question. Specifically, the thing becomes a little bit more complicated for the following reason. There is no question that there are certain things in the Dead Sea Scrolls that strongly influenced Christianity that may not have influenced Judaism. On the other hand, there are other things in the Dead Sea Scrolls that seem like they're in complete continuity with Judaism and don't seem to be in continuity at all with Christianity. So my view of this is that we have to have a much more complex model. We have to start by saying that we only know a small percentage of what was going on in Second Temple Judaism. So therefore, the extent to which Qumran materials may enlighten us about Christianity requires us to still remember that there may have been other groups that don't exist, and furthermore, that it's not as if some group fed into Christianity, or for that matter, into rabbinic Judaism. It's about the fact that there were a variety of groups and a large common tradition and a variety of texts, and these books, groups, etc., influenced the rise of Christianity, some of them in different ways, just as one example, Pharisaic ethics are the basis for the ethics of Christianity. That's no question if you read passages like the Sermon on the Mount. It's blatantly obvious. At the same time, certain ideas of these sectarians may have influenced rabbinic Judaism. So it's a complex sorting out of ideas and a simple model like, you know, people got on a bus at Qumran and got off at an early Christian church. That kind of simplistic approach doesn't reckon with the complexity of the intellectual and religious tradition, knowledge, etc., that we're gaining of Second Temple Judaism. As you um, lecture around the world and you lecture in front of um, Christian groups and present this thesis, what, if you can generalize, what is the response and the give and take as you uh, present this more complex model? Well, I would say that most people seem to like it. <laughs> I don't think that the simple model 
is being followed by scholars anymore. It's pretty hard to find scholars who are following this model that the Essenes, Essene Judaism generated Christianity. And there's a very big reason for this. It worked before the scrolls were all available. During that period up to 1991, when the scrolls were still being kept secret, many of them were being kept secret by the editorial team, you could claim this. But then the turning point started when Yigael Yadin published the Temple Scroll. Because this was an entirely halachic text and simply has no relation to the rise of Christianity. And then when afterwards the whole, the whole corpus was made available, it caused a balanced point of view. And that balanced point of view came out something like what I uh, am talking about here. So what turns out is that most people studying the scrolls ended up with this balanced point of view because it's really what the scrolls talk about. Convention here, a colleague, Devorah Demont, who was the first to completely classify all of the scrolls, in, even though many of them are very fragmentary, into these three groups of Bible, apocryphal-like, or whatever you want to call that second group, which we call non-sectarian, because they're not only for the Dead Sea sect, and the so-called sectarian group. And once she completed that study, which I think was about 1992-93, this also pushed the balance greatly. That was a very important article that she wrote. I remember we were in the research institutes two years or two Two out of three years, to, within three years, two years together, sitting in offices, and I was watching her collect all these photos of all these scrolls and figure this whole thing out, and uh, it, it had a big, a very big impact on on the way we understand the balance of the material and what it all is. So, to a great extent, the turning point started with Yadin, because in '67 he got the Temple Scroll during the war, and the Temple Scroll was first published only in Hebrew, but then in English. And by the 1980s, it was having the effect of making clear the extent to which this sectarian group was halachic, Jewish law-oriented, which then started to call forth a whole lot of questions about how could we really think it's so proto-Christian since Christianity very quickly got rid of many of the very same laws that are stated in these texts. Why should traditional observant Jews study and learn about the Dead Sea Scrolls? Well, I would say that the, the first thing to understand is that the Dead Sea Scrolls illustrate, they really prove, in many cases, early dates of some texts that we only know from rabbinic texts that are dated later on. Now, particularly, this gets to the point of the Mishnah being post-Temple, and many materials that go back to the Temple times in the scrolls in some cases showing us that some very particular laws, large numbers of particular laws, and particular ideas predated the destruction of the temple. And that's an important thing that interests many people. Another thing, though, however, which is probably a little different than what many of them thought, is to understand that the Second Temple period was a period of tremendous debate in Judaism. And when the Pharisaic-slash-Rabbinic approach emerged to become what we would call the normative approach in Judaism thereafter, it emerged from a very, very extensive debate, one might say, in which many different ideas were being put forward, some different, some similar, and some not so similar, right? And and there was this big, tremendous debate. 
and the kinds of debates we see in rabbinic literature, even debates pertaining to the earlier period, are only a small part of the way in which these things were being debated. We have like the tip of the iceberg. Let's give you one small example. We have the debate about when Shavuot is observed. Now that debate is part, we know from the scrolls, of a much bigger debate about whether to use a lunar calendar or a solar calendar in terms of the months. But that debate is part of an entire tradition of Mesopotamian uh, mathematics and astronomy, much of which is preserved at Qumran. So we know that the ability to calculate calendars and talk scientifically about calendar was existed in Second Temple times among the Jewish people. And it's in that context that the discussion of which calendar to follow is going on. Now, all that, all you would know from rabbinic literature, there's an argument about one holiday. So there's much more here to understand. And, and how does this reconcile with an approach? Again, this might be a, a too simplistic a, a presentation, an approach that there is a tradition, a Mesorah, that is just passed from generation to generation, and that's a, a continuity of... I see, when, when you actually... You can, you can argue from these materials that there is such a Mesorah passed on from generation to generation to generation, but you've got to admit there were other ideas and other people who thought the Mesorah said something different. I think that, that's the point. That's where it does complicate the picture that is usually given in traditional uh, contexts. What does the future look like for Dead Sea scholarship? As you had mentioned and alluded to it, there was a period where there was this tremendous mystery and maybe conspiracy theories. Right. Certain things were revealed. Certain things weren't revealed. Where has it come to at this point? And where? Well, we're in good shape now. Oh. From the point, yeah, we're in good shape now. From the point of view that everything's been published, and anybody wants to can uh, buy the books and read them. We have hundreds of excellent scholarly works on given texts and and materials coming out. I was privileged just to publish the first volume of a new series of re-editing of texts in which I and uh, a former student and colleague, Andrew Gross, published a new edition of the Temple Scroll. There'll be many new editions based on scholarship after the initial editions of many of the important texts that will be coming out in the future. That will continue. The big deal now is a turn towards science. Now, this is something which can turn out to be very important. First of all, we now have online all photographs of all the texts available so that people can work with them. They tend not to do any good for people who aren't scholars in the field, but for scholars and students in the field, the ability to blow them up and maneuver them and compare them and all this kind of stuff is enormously helpful. But then what I would say about the scientific research, for example, there was a a burnt scroll from probably the 4th or 5th century that was found, a uh, scroll of Vayikra, that was found in the synagogue in Gedi. And using sophisticated computer technology, they were able to, uh, so to speak, open the scroll and read layers of the scroll that are completely burned. This is a similar technology to what's being done with some of the uh, scrolls from Pompeii and Herculaneum, which were covered over by the, uh, by, by, by the volcanoes. Now, then another thing that's being done right now is that people are working on the ink to understand what the ink composition was. This is stimulated by the fact that they're entered into the market some 70 forged fragments from 2002 on. I'll just tell 
listeners not to buy any Dead Sea Scrolls. It's a bad move. And then we have also the uh, use of science to try and determine the relationship by DNA of some parts of little fragments that we don't know where to place that may help us to place them. There uh, is in uh, development now a tool for editing Dead Sea Scrolls materials online. So there's a lot of stuff happening in that area. It's yet to really give us uh, valuable results, but it's, it is the new trend now, looking at scientific uh, type approaches or technological approaches to, to working on the scrolls. Now, the big question is whether or not without corruption uh, and uh, conspiracy and all this kind of stuff, whether interest will stay with the scrolls. I can only quote my now, unfortunately, late NYU colleague, Baruch Levine, who said when the scrolls started to enter the public eye again in really the 1980s and 90s, he said that the scrolls were like Shakespeare. People would always be interested in them. It's just that the people who didn't publish them ruined it. And now they're out, the interest will keep going, and it will be always there among certain parts of the uh, intellectually interested people. And uh, his comparison with Shakespeare, you know, the average person doesn't go to Shakespeare. But a lot of people go to and a lot of people study Shakespeare in school. And Shakespeare has become an important part of our general civilization. And his idea was that the scrolls will become a part of the discussion of ancient religion and of Judaism and Christianity. And interest will stay. Now, I could say the following about this, though, that there is a, a, an issue here in terms of uh, interest, not of a diminishing kind of interest with the scrolls. The interest seems to stay. But what we as scholars know is that it has not yet become part of the scholarly equipment of non-specialists. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that the person who teaches in ex-Christian seminary or ex-Jewish seminary may know nothing about the scrolls. And it therefore will not get into lessons on related subjects. And that is a problem. I'll just give you now a Talmudic example. Many people are aware that the exact spelling of the words in singular and plural for the sukkah and for the compartments of the tefillin is under debate in our sources because the rabbis derive from the spelling certain things about the number of walls of the sukkah and the number of compartments of tefillin. And yet some of the commentators jump on those explanations and say that's not what's in our Torah scroll. Now, a person who knew the Dead Sea Scrolls would have a much better time explaining why it is that the rabbis tell us that on Vavs and Yuds, we don't really know the precise spelling because they would be able to point to numerous scrolls of every biblical book that are simply not careful careful about the spelling of Vavs and Yuds that would never come up because none of these people would ever know that that's the case in the Dead Sea Scrolls, because scroll scholarship has stayed inside a core group, and the public has been given generalized works that the average person can read, but we don't have the sort of in-between when scholars of related subjects know something about the Dead Sea Scrolls, and that's a missing ingredient. Just to give an example, every Bible scholar knows something about archaeology, 
but they may know much less about the actual Dead Sea Scrolls. So that's a challenge that Dead Sea Scrolls scholars have that I think we know about, and we're trying to do something about it. So what, what is the next steps that, that you're involved with? In, in- well, I'm involved now in a fantastic new project that we actually just had the first editorial meeting literally Monday this week. Okay, that, scoop. Uh, real, real Publishers is preparing to do an online encyclopedia of the Dead Sea Scrolls with all kinds of links. We read the article, you can link on a text, you can link on a biblical text, you can link on other uh, scholarly publications, which they have published, and which therefore will be available through this system. <coughs> and it's going to be a tremendous help to scholars. Now, beyond that, I know that the Israel Museum is about to come out with a very, very beautiful book, and they hope to do a number of them on a scroll showing what this scroll really says about the history of the period to somebody who's not a Dead Sea Scroll specialist, more general type book, but that's in the middle, because it's not just one of these one-volume Dead Sea Scrolls books. (laughs) So I think there's a lot of a lot of things down the pipeline will still be coming. We still have quite a bit of research done and a lot to do to understand the scrolls more fully. <coughs> Excuse me for coughing here. Please, please. Again, uh, Professor Schiffman on the Dead Sea Scrolls, we really touched you know, the, the basics of the basics, but um, I hope it wakes our viewers and listeners' appetite and, uh, again, urge all of, all of us to... Uh, Purchase a couple of books on the Dead Sea Scrolls. Look out for the uh, the new ventures coming out. And again, Professor Shipman, thank you so much. Uh, appreciate your time today. Okay, thank you very much. <laughs>